In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, we're going to start a new series, um, not very long one, um, about um, a book called the Didache. Um, it's also referred to as the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles through the Twelve Apostles. Okay, so what is this book, and what is its um, significance? So the Didache is called like a manual of church discipline because it has many like precepts, it has many guidelines, it has um, a lot of information um, that reveals to us like certain practices of the early church, okay? Um, and it is known as this, the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles through the 12 apostles. It was not written directly by the apostles because it was written after the era of the apostles. But it took the practices that had been established by the apostles in the church and put them together, documented them for the sake of the teaching of the Gentiles. Of course, we know as the church uh, greatly expanded, right, during this time from the book of Acts to the generations after, the church grew very quickly, right? And you had people who lived in very far away places um, that, you know, had never been exposed to Christianity or to Christ. And the role of the apostles was to teach them the precepts of Christianity um, from zero. Like they didn't have any background at all. Think about how hard it is even even today to teach the principles of Christianity and to have people to um, adopt a genuine Christian faith, even though Christianity is already established in many places. Um, Christianity is even a majority religion in many places. We have the internet. We have all kinds of ways of communicating over long distances. So imagine how hard it would be for the early church having churches begin to be spread out thousands of miles apart, right? Um, especially after the era of the apostles, unless there was some very clear guidance as to what we believe, how the church should practice, what we should be looking out for, um, and so on. So the scholars agree that it was written during the late first century or early second century, but the practices that are described in it had been in use for a long time. This was just kind of the the, the codification of the things that had already been practiced. The same thing could say you could apply to the creed, right? The creed was created in the first and the second ecumenical councils, okay, which happened in the fourth and uh, in the fourth century, okay. So four hundred years after Christ, three to four hundred years after Christ, but that doesn't mean that that was the first time that the church began to believe, right? What what was in the creed? We believe what was in the creed from the very very beginning, but there was not yet a need to write it down in a structured way as, as a creed that we would um, proclaim in the churches that this is a description of our faith until the faith started to be challenged. Once the faith started to be challenged, we, we, we wrote it down and we said this is what we believe so it can be clear to the believers and clear to those who are outside. This is the Christian faith. So also here, even though this document was written in the first or second century, it doesn't mean that these practices had not already been in use, right? They had already been in use. This is the same faith that had been established by the apostles. Although the author is, is unknown, but the teachings were those of the apostles. This document, the Didache, it was lost for centuries, right? It, we, were not, we were not familiar with it. We did not, we did not have the text of it. Um, uh, a Greek manuscript of the Didache was rediscovered in 1873, um, by this man, Philotheos Brenios. He was the Metropolitan of Nicomedia. 
um, in this codex. Codex is like a like a like a manuscript that was found in 1873 that had the Greek of the Didache written on it. Okay, and the word Didache means teaching. If you're familiar with the word didactic, like when it comes to teaching, didactic means something related to teaching. So this is the same word. Um, it was compiled from various sources that detailed the traditions of the early church, and it may be the oldest known document in Christian antiquity. So, so, so apart from the New Testament, okay, which of course we know was written earlier, this is one of the very, very earliest documents that was written um, by the church from the very beginning. Um, it has been said to be undoubtedly the most ancient church manual in mankind's possession. Um, and in the early church, it was held worthy of great respect and was often quoted from by St. Clement of Alexandria as well as St. Athanasius the Apostolic. So again, it was not considered to be inspired, kind of like when we spoke about the shepherd of Hermas before. It's not considered to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is the collection of the teachings of the church. Eusebius listed it with the Orthodox writings that were eventually excluded from the New Testament canon. Much of the text is intended to instruct new Gentile converts in the Christian faith. Okay, so again, the purpose of it is to teach the Gentiles the faith. Um, the, the, um, those people who lived in Jerusalem, right, they had the benefit of much of the oral tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation. And the people could learn from the apostles and then from the generation after the apostolic fathers and so on. Um, whereas, again, when you're going to establish churches that are far, far away from Jerusalem, um, in completely other countries, you had to have something more written. Say, this is um, what we are going to share with you to teach you the faith. This is a little different than the epistles, right? In the New Testament, what is the New Testament primarily consist of? There's the Gospels, which is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then there's the epistles. The epistles were letters that were written to specific churches that the church found to be useful in instruction, you know, in, in, in edification for our spiritual life. So it became in included in what we now call the Bible for the sake of the teaching of the Christians, right? But who was the original um, intended recipient of the epistles? It was the individual churches that the epistles were written to. They were useful for the whole church. But, you know, when St. Paul is writing the letter, he's writing it to the Corinthians. He's writing it to the Ephesians, okay? Whereas this is more of, hey, we need to have kind of a, a way of teaching the whole church about what is it that we believe and what is it that we practice, and this is how the Didache was compiled, okay? It's divided into three sections, okay? The first section, part one, is the first six chapters. It presents the two ways of life and death. Right, the two ways. It's based on Deuteronomy 30:15, where God is telling the people, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And then he goes on to say, choose life. Like here are the two options for you to live. There is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. Okay, so choose, choose life. And these first chapters, these first six chapters um, are all about this. Like here's the way that if you, you as a new Christian, as a Christian convert, if you want to live, um, life if you want to have a full life an abundant life a life with god and eternal life this is how you should live or the alternative is to live as you have lived before right because each of these you know the gentiles were, were pagans so they were they were living in pagan worship um they were living uh, lustfully wickedly and so here the apostles when they are calling them to the faith they're saying 
you you're 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 not just changing your belief system but you are changing your manner of life and so if you want to truly be a christian it's not just about what you believe but it's about what you practice based on um, your belief. So these first chapters include many sayings that resemble things that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said about various virtues, about staying away from sin, loving one's neighbor, things like that. Okay, the second part, which is chapter 7 through 10, this now starts to speak more about specific instructions to the church. Okay, specific instructions to the church, like rites, Instructions for baptism, instructions for fasting, instructions for prayer and the Eucharist. Um, for instance, the idea that we fast Wednesdays and Fridays, right? That came from this. We're going to read um, more, more about it. Uh, it says, for instance, baptism is to be performed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as we do now. Fasting is to be practiced on Wednesdays and Fridays, in contrast with the Jews who fasted Mondays and, uh, and Thursdays. Like one of the reasons, actually, that we don't fast Mondays and and Thursdays on a weekly basis, like the, the kind of, not if it's a seasonal fast, but uh, the rest of the year. We don't fast Mondays and Thursdays because this is how the Jews fast. So we want to differentiate ourselves from the Jews. For instance, we don't pray, um, uh, we don't pray to, like the day of the Lord is not a Saturday, like the Sabbath, like the Jews have, but on a Sunday. Again, we're differentiating ourselves from the Jews. The way that the church even um, calculates the feast of the resurrection every year of how is it that we when we do we practice the feast when do we celebrate the feast of resurrection is the calculation is when do the jews celebrate the passover and then we add a week to it because we don't want to celebrate the feast of the resurrection at the same time that the jews celebrate the passover because because our passover is a is a different passover so the church wanted very clearly from the beginning to differentiate themselves from the Jewish faith. Because uh, we know, of course, the Christianity came from Judaism, right? So there was the, 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 the you know, the, all of the apostles, they were Jews, right? And then became Christian after the Lord Christ came. So there was, there was a need to differentiate, to have an identity, a Christian identity separate from the Jewish identity. So people wouldn't come and think that they were the same thing or that these are just, you know, schismatic Jews or Jews that have slightly a different faith. No, it was a completely different faith, a completely different religion. So, so many of the practices that were done were made intentionally to not line up with what the Jews had done. One of the things also that is mentioned in this chapter is the Lord's Prayer. So, just the, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father Prayer that we, um, of course, we pray every day. Um, it actually says here that it's to be recited every day, right? The prayer of the Lord. Um, people ask, like, why do we pray Our Father all the time? Well, number one, Christ himself, when the disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, he said, when you pray, pray thus. And he said, our Father who art in heaven, right? So, so the, the words of the Lord's Prayer came directly from Christ, and then the church took that prayer and said, this is useful for us to pray often, so pray it every day. It's mentioned here um, in this section. In, in part three, um, this is specifically speaking to the church leadership, like to the bishops and to the priests and to the deacons, okay? For instance, it discusses the marks of true apostles and prophets who are referred to as high priests and the church's responsibility toward them. Um, like, how is it that we should deal with different teachers? You know, like one of the issues that would happen during this time is that there would be false teachers. Um, you didn't have a way of, like, verifying people, people's identity. Who are you? 
some person comes to the church and says, hey, I'm, you know, bishop so-and-so or I'm prophet so-and-so or whatever, and they begin to preach. Can I preach to your congregation? How would you know if this is a true teacher or a false teacher, right? So there are some instructions given to the leadership of the churches of certain things that they um, also need to know. So that's an overview of the whole thing, okay? We're going to go a little bit more detail into the different parts. Um, so um, today we're going to focus on the first section, which is the chapters 1 through 6, the two ways, um, life and death, and he's saying choose, choose life. Um, I have just a few quotes that we can read together. So it says, well, there are two ways, one of life and one of death, and great is the difference between the two ways. This is the way of life. First, you shall love God who made you. Secondly, your neighbor as yourself. And whatever you would not like done to you, do not do to another. So you see, he's taking the, you know, almost verbatim, okay, the, the sayings of the Lord Christ himself, and he's saying, this is what we want the people to focus on. We want the people to, this is, this is what the Lord commanded right? Um, how is it that you choose the way of life? Love God and love your neighbor and do unto others what you want them to be done unto you. Very simple, very basic uh, instructions for, for the people. He speaks about praying for enemies. Um, he, s he speaks about giving to everyone who asks, asking nothing in return, almost like reading the Sermon on the Mount, right? So, mu so much of this is like the Sermon on the Mount um, that the Lord taught when he was on the mountain in, in Matthew chapter 5, and, 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 and so you, you get this flavor from it of the simplicity of the teaching. You know, sometimes today our teachings become too complicated, right? Like there's too many things that we're talking about without really focusing on what is the essence of, of the faith, right? Everything needs to come back and point to these simple things. What is life and how do we choose life? How do, what, how do I make daily decisions in my life that are choosing eternity, that are choosing God? Um, it's not about necessarily having any fancy knowledge or, 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 or theological, deep theological understanding of things, or, or, you know, it's, it's, yes, theological understanding is important, but, but not, not when it kind of leads us away from this simple message, okay? Choose life. Blessed is the man who gives according to the commandment, for he is without blame. Woe to the man who takes. However, if the one who takes is in need, he is without blame. But should he not be in need, he shall give an account of why, of the why and the wherefore of his taking it. So he's saying what? He's saying if, if there's someone who is taking, like let's say the church is financially supporting someone, okay? Who is this person who is being financially supported? Is he someone who is truly in need? If he's truly in need, then he is blameless because God is offering this to him as a gift to the church is supporting this person. But if the person who is taking is someone who is not in need, He's saying, woe to the man, like woe to the man who is a burden, woe to the man who tries to manipulate, woe to the man who, you know, does not take his fair share. Even when um, St. Paul was speaking to the Thessalonians, one of the issues that the church of the Thessalonica had is that there were people who believed that the end of the world was imminent and was coming immediately. And so they stopped working. Everyone stopped doing everything. They quit their jobs. Like they're just waiting, waiting, waiting for the end of the world. And so St. Paul came, when he, when he wrote to them, he said, what he who shall not work shall not eat, right? Like, if you are able to work and you are able to support yourself, then you must do so. Don't come to the church asking for the church to do what you yourself can, can, can provide for yourself, right? Giving to the poor is not the same as, as, as like, you know, like, like, okay, we're giving handouts to everyone. No, God wants us to work and he wants us to, 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 to take care of ourselves, but when we are not able and we are truly in need, then yes, the church gives, right? And this is blessed by God. 
But in this manner, the saying also holds, let your alms sweat in your hands until you know to whom you are giving. What do you think this means? What does it mean, let your alms sweat in your hands? What are alms? Hmm? Money. Like if you're going to give to the charity, you're going to give to the poor, this is alms. So what does it mean? It says, let your alms sweat. Hold on to it. Hold on to it until what? Until you know to whom you are giving. Meaning, don't be arbitrary when you give. Think about who you're giving. Is the person that I'm giving truly in need? Or am I giving, actually sometimes we give money that enables bad behavior. We give money in a way that maybe promotes a lifestyle that is destructive. And so we keep giving and giving and giving, but in the end, are we really benefiting this person or are we actually driving them further and further down the path of destruction? Right? And so this is what he's saying. Let your arms sweat. Consider it. Because this is, this is like God's money. Like, you know, when, when people give the donations to the church, we have to be very careful with how we spend this money because it is the money of the people that they have given to God. And God is wanting to use this money for the benefit of his people. Right? So consider. Consider. Don't just give for the sake of giving. Consider what is the recipient. Who is the recipient of this? You shall not commit murder, adultery, fornication, theft, sorcery, lie, coveting. All these things are mentioned. Okay, um, It says, let your speech not be false or vain, but carried out in action. Meaning, um, don't just speak many words, but carry out your words. Right? You know, sometimes we say a lot of things, but we don't live it out. Um, you shall not kill. This is interesting. It says this. You shall not kill an unborn child or murder a newborn infant. Right? So it's even mentioning abortion as one of the guidelines from the very, very early, this from the first century, right, is from the first century that this was a problem. For the first century that the apostles had established this principle that was then shared with all of the church, right? Do not commit abortion from, from very, very early. He speaks about not becoming angry. Do not use obscene language or let your eye wander, for from all these come adulteries, my child, do not be an observer of omens, for this leads to idolatry or engage in witchcraft, astrology, or ritual ablu ablution. So this is all things that are mentioned. Speaks about being patient and meek, merciful, gentle. He says, accept the troubles that come to you as good, knowing that nothing happens without God. This was like a very nice quote. Accept the troubles that come to you as good. You know, if we were all accept the troubles that came to us and we see them as good, then we wouldn't be so quick to seek them to end, right? Like sometimes the first or the only thing that we really think about whenever trouble comes on us is how do I get out of this trouble as fast as possible, right? What can I do to end this trial the fastest possible way because it's painful for me and I don't like it, I don't want it. And our whole focus can become so much on how do I end the trial that I miss the lesson of the trial to begin with, which is God has given this to me. Right? So I shouldn't see it as bad. I see it as God has given this to me. God wants me to have this. What is it that I can learn from this? What does God want me to walk out of this with? There is something, right? Accept the troubles that come to you as good. You know, if we really saw the troubles that came to us as good, we would not be so quick to try to end them. Doesn't mean we enjoy it, but we see like this is for my good. God is doing this for my good. There is something that I need to experience this for, something that is preparing me maybe for something that is to come. Nothing happens without God. 
God, God is not confused. He's not unaware. He knows very well the struggles that we face, um, and, and, and he allows them for a reason. Chapter 4. My child, day and night keep in memory of him who speaks the word of God to you, and you shall honor him as the Lord. For the Lord is there, wherefore the doctrine of the Lord is preached. And every day look for the company of holy men, that you may find comfort in their conversation. So he's, he's advising the people, and he's saying what? Take heed to those people who have been chosen by God to speak the word of God to you, to be pastors to you, to serve you, to, to work for your salvation. Those people God has put in your life for your benefit. Okay? So number one, he says, you shall keep, keep him in your memory, meaning always keep him in your mind, the person who speaks the word of God to you. You shall honor him as the Lord. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that a person who comes like a person who is a teacher or a prophet or whoever, an apostle. It doesn't say that you should worship this person. No. But honor him because he is the representative of God. God is the one who is bringing him to you for your salvation. For the Lord is there wherever the doctrine of the Lord is preached. Whenever we are speaking about God, about his commandments, about his instructions, then the Lord is present with us. And he says, every day look for the company of these holy men. Why? Because when you are in the company of holy people, then you, that holiness rubs off, right? Anyone who has been to the monastery and stayed there for a few days, when you are done with this retreat, you feel different. You feel like you have a different perspective on the world. You have a different desire in your heart. You have maybe a renewed motivation to strive and to read the Bible and to pray and to repent. and Because the environment there and the company there makes us remember what is really important, right? Whereas when we are kind of just, you know, like in the world, drowning in the details and the, 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 of the, and the busyness of the world, maybe we forget, right? So when we look for the company of these people, we find comfort in them. We find comfort in our struggles. We find comfort with speaking to them because we hear from them a different perspective, a perspective that brings life, a perspective that sees things from the perspective of God and not just from the worldly perspective. Um, also speaks about seeking peace, finding peace and comfort, judging in a just way. Many things, of course, that the scripture mentions. It also says, do not hold your hands open for receiving and closed for giving, meaning if, if you are seeking something for yourself that you need, also be willing to return, also be willing to give to others. Do not take your hand from your son or your daughter, but teach them the fear of God from their youth. This is an admonition for parents. You know, sometimes we, um, we fall into the trap of we just want to give our children what will quiet them. We, we want to give our children what will make them feel happy. You want to give our children what will make them feel like we are your friend. And there is some value in that, of course, in our children's feeling that we, we are their friend. But we are not only the friend. We have another role, an even more important role. Because for our children, they can have many friends in their life, but they're never going to have many parents. So this is like when St. Paul is speaking to the churches and he's saying, "What you have many teachers, but you do not have many fathers, right? And he was their father. So as parents, he's saying, "What make the hard choices, even if it means discipline, even if it means rebuke, do not take your hand, right? Do not take your hand, meaning like, like don't, don't, be sh don't shy away from giving discipline, right? For the sake of raising the child. 
unfortunately, um, sometimes the parents who are the ones giving discipline, they're not giving the discipline in a balanced way. Or they're giving discipline not for the sake of wanting to raise the child in the fear of God, but they're giving discipline out of their own personal anger. This is not the same. It's not the same. If I personally am upset and angry as a father to my children, and I choose to punish them in my anger, then my, my, my goal here is not to raise the children in the fear of God. My role is to vent my anger, just as I would vent my anger if I'm upset with any other person. The true godly parenting is the, one, is the parents who choose when to discipline, when to comfort, when to speak gently, when to speak firmly. And the goal in mind in the end is, what can I do to teach my children the best thing so that they can be the most successful in their life, they can be most successful in their spiritual life? So even from the very beginning, this is the method of parenting that was discussed. Um, you shall confess your offenses in the church and shall not come forward to your prayer with a bad conscience. Right? So the idea of confession, of course we know confession is something established by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and it's a sacrament in the church. It says you shall go to the church and you shall confess your offenses. Right? And then when you confess your, uh, your, your offenses, then you come forward to your prayer. Right? So I am at peace with God. I have reconciliation with God and not with a bad conscience. Meaning I don't come to God in prayer while I have all of these things that I am, have not repented of, have not confessed of. I come and I clear the air. I come and I, I lay everything out and I ask for God's forgiveness and I confess my sin and then my relationship with God will be unfettered. It will be, there, will, there will be no obstacle between me and, and God because I will not have anything on my conscience. My conscience will be clear. Chapter 5 then, so he's speaking about the way of life. So chapter 5, he talks about the way of death. He says, on the other hand, this is the way of death. First of all, it is evil and full of cursings, murders, adulteries, evil desires, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magical practices, sorceries, robberies, false witnessings, hypocrisies, double-mindedness, guile, pride, malice, arrogance, covetousness, filthy talk, envy, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, and lack of fear of God. This is death. And when you think about the death, the death is all the things that were there before we chose life. Right? If even St. Paul, when he speaks to the Gentiles, he says, this is how you used to be. Right? Before you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, this was how you would characterize your life with these things. Now that you have accepted him, now that you have come to the faith, put away these things. Right? These things um, are, are, are unacceptable right to live this way and because we see so many examples of people around us living this way maybe it's easy to fall into these practices because we feel like we're just like everyone else whereas christ is calling us to not be like anyone else that we are unique and different he says they do not acknowledge their creator they are murderers of children corruptors of the image of god be back to that same point that mentioned earlier about the abortion right these people who do this they are murderers of children and as they are murdering children, their conscience does not prick them. They, are, they, are not, they, they, they don't feel um, offended at what they do. Instead, they defend themselves of what they do because their mind has been so corrupted. They're, the image of God in them has been so corrupted that they don't even understand right from wrong. They don't even understand the basic principles right, of right from wrong. And saying this is the way of death. When you go down into the way of death, it's, it's all-consuming. 
It's not just a decision I make with my mind. It will consume you. It, you, you, you. You change. It will change you, right? So that it's not so easy to come out again. This is why the people who say, you know, why is it that I can't live my life for myself, live my life and have fun in my life and do everything that I want to do, and then later in my life I will repent. Well, maybe you're thinking in this moment that what you want is to live this way and at the end of your life you will repent. But if you start walking down this road, you will not want to repent. You will, it will change you. You will, be, you will change. You will, you will not even desire. You will mock God. You will not believe in him because you have gone down this path. This is the way of death. And then finally, chapter 6. This is the last chapter of the first section. It says, if you are able to carry the full yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you are not able, do whatever you can. It's, it's, it's very interesting. You know, Christianity is very practical. You know, some people think it's impractical. It's actually very practical. He's saying, what are you called to do? Carry the full yoke of the Lord. But if you can't do it, do something. Do something. And the parable of the talents, the servant who was given the one talent, he took that talent, he buried it in the ground, he did nothing with it. And then when the master came, the servant said, here's your talent. I didn't do anything with it. And so what did the master say to him? He said, you could have at least taken it to the bank and earned interest. It's the minimum you could have done. Like, I'm not asking you to go and be, you know, a savvy investor and make thousands of times your initial investment. I'm asking you to do the minimum. You didn't even do that, right? So the person who maybe looks at the, you know, the high bar that we're called to live for and then looks at it and says, no, I, I, I can't do that. Like, that's beyond me. And they just walk away, right? Like today in, in, the, in the gospel reading with the rich young ruler, when the Lord said, go sell all that you have, maybe he could have thought to himself, you know, I can't sell all that I have, but I will sell 20% at least. I will do something. I will, I will make an effort to, to, to try to commit to the commandments of God. You know, And if I make an effort, maybe God will look at me and have mercy on me. Right? So if you are able to carry the full yoke of the Lord, you will be a saint. Right? You will be perfect. But if you are not able, which is probably all of us, do whatever you can. Find a way. If you cannot fast all of the fasts of the church, fast one day a week. You know, if you, if you can't like forgive all of your enemies, try to forgive one person. At least try to forgive your family if you can't forgive your enemies. You know, do something. Don't say, I'm going to leave it all because I can't do it. Say, how much of it can I do? And I will start somewhere and I will begin to build. With regard to food, abstain as much as you can. I can't abstain? Do something. From whatever has been offered to idols, abstain completely, for this is to worship dead gods. So this is, again, based on the commandment that was given to the Gentiles by the apostles in Acts chapter 15, where they said for the Gentiles, because the Gentiles were um, coming from pagan religion where they were worshiping these false gods, he says avoid eating the, 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 you know, the things that have been offered to, 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 to these gods completely, right? Abstain from them. Don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Stay away from these things. Um, altogether. So this is the first section, the first six chapters of the Didache. Very spiritually simple, simple to read, simple to understand, not complicated, and very applicable um, in our life. God willing, next time we will continue with the second section, um, which is the instructions um, for worship. Does anyone have any comments or questions? Yes.
uh, I'm not sure when. Well, so yes, because this was a like th this was a declaration of what the church had already been doing. I don't know exactly when the fasting Wednesdays and Fridays started. I, I'm not sure, but I know that before this it started. Yes. Because this isn't anything new. This is just a collection of the things that the church does. So, like, for instance, let's say we were going to go establish a church some other place that has never had a Christian church before, never had an Orthodox church. So we say, let's write a manual that is going to teach them what we do. So we're going to write down, we fast these days, we do this, we do this, and then we give it to them. And so that's what this is. This is just a compilation of what the church already practiced. This was not new commandments. Okay? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O Lord, for all of the things you have given us to remind us of yourself, to remind us how we should live, that even the documents that we have found from so long ago are still a testament, O Lord, to the faith. We thank you, O Lord, because you are constantly knocking on the doors of our hearts, asking us to return to you, showing us, O Lord, the path that we should walk. Help us, O God, to struggle. Help us, O Lord, to do all that we can, even if it is not perfection. Help us, O Lord, to have faith in you in the midst of this perverse generation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.